Live from the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz today. Joe Biden is warning of cyber attacks that the Russians may be considering, if not considering, doing cyber attacks in the U.S. But uh, look, today my administration has issued new warnings that based on evolving intelligence, Russia may be planning a cyber attack against us. As I said, the magnitude of Russia's cyber capacity is fairly consequential. And it's the federal government is doing get ready. But under U.S. law, as you all remember, the private sector, all of you, largely decides the protections that is you will or will not take. Just sorry about the little bit of audio issue uh, there. But if we think that the, the, the Russians are going to gauge a cyber attack, there's only one question. What's our response? If the Russians can threaten us with cyber attack or attack and shut down a pipeline or shut down uh, the, the medical field, uh, you know, a couple of hospitals or, 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 or some, some banks, some institutions like that, what's the response? Get Norton antivirus? I mean, that's, that's something. That's, that's the answer? Who knew that the answer would actually be learn to code? Who knew? No, the answer has got to be some response to which Vladimir Putin now lives in fear. Well, you can't do anything. He has nuclear weapons. I'm going to prepare for you an argument, and it goes like this. Or I want you to prepare yourself for an argument. He goes like this. There comes a moment you got to punch a guy in the face no matter how many muscles he has. Now, if you want to say a punch in the face is physical, sure. I think those punches can go a lot of different ways. But if we're going to sit here and be like, oh, oh, we're just going to get attacked this way and attacked that way and attacked the other way. What are we going to do? Just got to deal with it. Just dealing with it is a remarkably ignorant plan. Sometimes you take a couple hits before you respond. I don't disagree with that. But the idea that you just take it is nonsense. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today, great to be with you. 833-GOT-TONY, 833-468-8669. I know that uh, Senator Mike Lee is going to be next in line to ask questions of the Supreme Court nominee, uh, Katanji Brown-Jackson, and I want to hear from him. When, are they back at at one thirty? Is that it, Producer Mark? All right, well, if they're back at 1.30, then we've got time. Because his questions, I think, will actually be substantive. I've heard from Republicans and Democrats so far questions that were were not. Questions that had no substance whatsoever. Speaking of no substance, allow me to share. Do you guys remember the name Torre? Torre, for a while, was a host on MSNBC. Um, and he, he came from, I think it was a music background, whether he was a music writer or whether he was a, a producer. I never, I never figured out. I didn't follow that much of, of his, of his history. Um, he, uh, he's doing, um, a Prince podcast docuseries who was Prince. 
Um, the Prince biography, nothing compares to you. If you remember that song from Sinead O'Connor, Prince actually wrote that song. And Prince, Prince was a once-in-a-generation talent. Period. End of discussion. Well, Torre got into a very weird commentary. And you got to understand that he's a, he's a leftist. And he tweets out, if you go to a restaurant and you get served, you should tip 20%, period. If you get bad service, then speak to the manager. Don't dock the tip and walk out without saying what went wrong. That's whack. Now, he makes an actual point. That if you've gotten bad service, you should say something so the service gets better. If you walk out and don't explain what it is that went wrong, nobody learns. And trust me when I say, having been a guy who has uh, owned a restaurant and has managed restaurants, that you hear enough things to know when something's legit and something's nonsense. Let me give you an example of something that's nonsense. Um, I, I, I ordered the burger. I ate the burger. I didn't like it. Oh, I'm sorry you didn't like it. You should try this next time. It'll be better. It might, might more agree with you. Just because you don't like something doesn't mean I take it off a, a, a check. Not at all. It was made properly. You just didn't enjoy it like other things. Okay, now you know. That's why you try different things. But if it wasn't made properly, that's a reason for us to take care of it. Bad service is not that you didn't like uh, the, the meal that you ordered. Bad service is that nobody refilled your drink. Nobody checked in on you. Nobody got you the extra napkins. There was a timeliness issue. You felt disconnected. Like somehow you were on an island that you weren't cared for. Or worse, you were overly cared for and you didn't get enough privacy. You know, you got to know your people and, and, and it's just a little bit of a balancing act there. But letting somebody know or letting the management know is not the worst thing in the world. And someone wrote that I disagree. I'm not tipping for bad service. Torre responds, if you feel like you're getting bad service, you should communicate to the server what you need, give them a chance to make it right, or speak to the manager. The tip is not like a grade that rewards how they did turning servers into people dancing for dollars. Whoa, 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 whoa. It is like a grade that rewards how people did uh, for, for dollars. Of course, of course it is. Absolutely it is. But you should give them a chance to make it right. And don't do so in a nasty way. Don't do so in an elitist way. Do so in a way that normal people talk to each other. If the service is bad, you should not get 20%. I believe that true. I believe that true. Torre does not. He says tipping is a standard 20%. No, tipping is a standard 15%. Did it go up to 20%? I didn't know it. By the way, if I'm tipping 15%, it was bad service. Tipping is a standard 20%, and the vast majority of servers are very professional and friendly. It's not some way for us to train servers to perform for us and stay on point. Do you know how gross that sounds? Make sure you're on your toes or you'll lose four bucks. If I'm not on my toes, I lose sponsors. If I'm not on my toes, I don't get to negotiate a better salary in my next contract. This, this is, of course, the way it is. That is part of that business. That is the service business. If you're not on your toes, they go somewhere else. So I'm not, Tori is, Tori is losing, 
this this um, argument that the tip should happen regardless of the service that's provided. And I'm like, that's a, that's a pretty weird take. Even if I can find myself with some some basic agreement, he breaks it down in such a way that is wholly disagreeable. Enter Nicole Hannah-Jones. Oh, my goodness. Who's Nicole Hannah-Jones? She's the creator of the lie known as the 1619 Project, which puts forth the theory that the United States was founded and predicated on slavery. The 1619 Project is a lie, and any educator anywhere who utilizes the 1619 Project, who believes in the 1619 Project, who values the 1619 Project, is a fool, is ignorant, and should not ever, ever be trusted. The 1619 Project is a lie. It is mythology. So, by the way, is DEI. Oh, I got to start doing that a little bit more. I got to break that down further. Sorry, after after a lot of investigation, diversity, equity, and inclusion, man, that's all that's all nonsense. It's it's make believe. It's a myth. It's not about creating a better society. It's about further dividing society. And the people who buy into it, black and white, are ridiculous people. Like like talk about a way for me to know not to hire you. You think DEI has value. And if you say to me, so you're not going to hire people who believe in DEI? And the answer is no, I don't believe in bigotry. I'm not hiring bigots of any kind. People have skills, and those skills should be appreciated and compensated. I'm not hiring to color of skin like, for example, Joe Biden when he picks a Supreme Court justice. Don't look at me. Don't tell me I've done something wrong. He said it. We're witnessing it. And it is he who diminished Judge Brown Jackson. He diminished her to a couple of checkboxes of color of skin and genitalia. Not me. I'm taking a look at her judicial philosophy. I'm taking a look at what it is that she has to offer. And I have some some serious concerns. And I think this uh, sentences on, on people involved in child porn and lighter sentences and a belief in this is a real concern. But I don't disqualify her because of the color of her skin or because of her sex. That's what the progressives did. That's what the people who believe in DEI did. And that's why I won't hire them. They're insane. They can't provide a value. What they believe in is pure, raw, rank, unadulterated bigotry. Count daddy out. Uh, By the way, producer Ari, in this conversation, I will be referred to as daddy. Gross. So, Nicole, I don't know what made me laugh. We're going to need that on a loop. (laughs) Nicole Hannah-Jones tweets out to Torre, what what do you think is the purpose of tipping, Torre? Why does it exist? Enter Roland Martin. Roland Martin, who is with uh, News One in New York, uh, a black journalist. Is he a TV commentator or a journalist? I'm not sure which, so we'll just say it like that. Tipping exists because it was created to keep the wages of black people low. Yes, the current system of tipping is rooted in white supremacy.
okay. Tipping is a legacy of slavery and is white supremacy. Now, it is interesting to note that America is one of the few countries that does it this way, as opposed to building in the the uh, amount given to a server or the server is paid more and the tipping is eliminated altogether, right? Uh, tip, I always thought tips was uh, the acronym for to ensure prompt service. That's what I, I actually, that's what I thought it was, it, it was for. But Torre is now into the thing of saying, well, it doesn't matter. Tipping is what you have to do, and not tipping appropriately is punching down. So now we are into the place where tipping is white supremacy, and this is exactly the problem. This is exactly the problem. The insanity of the position. Don't you know it's insane? Don't you know it's crazy? There are restaurants that don't have tipping. There are restaurants that do have tipping. It's been a big conversation for a great number of years. Which one actively, uh, or, or which one can properly or actively create a better restaurant experience, a better dining experience, a better entertainment experience for the user while still being profitable to the people who work there? The very concept of a server, the very concept of a waiter, is indeed a concept of you work for me for this short while while I'm here and you do my bidding. Conceptually, of course it is. Someone's in charge and you work for them and you go running around getting them their water and fetching them their food and bringing them an extra knife and making them happy. If these people were serious, they would eliminate the position altogether. There should be no waiters and waitresses, no servers in any restaurant whatsoever. You simply walk into the kitchen cafeteria style and they slop it on your plate. But no, no, no. If they're slopping it on your plate, now they're the slaves. You got to slop it on your own plate. And why the hell are they forced to cook the food for you? You come in, you cook your own food, and then slop it on your own plate. But don't you not show up without the raw ingredients? What? They're supposed to cook? for you, you filthy, no good animal. You walk into the restaurant, you cook your own food, you then put the own food down, you then slop it onto your own plate, you then eat it, clear the table, and you pay them for the pleasure. Or we could not pay any attention to these crazy people and go about enjoying our lives at restaurants and seeing how people get paid and support their families from tips and regular customers that they have. Now, whether or not you should always tip 20% and how you should engage it, I think from Torrey, that's a fine conversation. It started off fine, and it went woke. Going woke is always the problem. I'm Tony Katz. So Fauci wants us in masks again or to get ready for it or get used to it. Uh, 
I'll get more into that. It's 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 like a never-ending conversation of of insanity. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. Interesting story from CNBC that BuzzFeed investors have pushed the CEO to shut down the entire newsroom. Urging the CEO, Jonah Peretti, to shut it all down. So they're doing voluntary buyouts and getting it all done. The news had about 100 employees and they lose roughly $10 million a year. They lose $10 million a year? That is stunning. Here's the question. What is BuzzFeed without the newsroom? It, It doesn't seem to me like they are anything. They're they're just now they they're they're an aggregator at that moment. Do they still break stories? Do they still have columnists? Shareholders are kind of excited. They think it's going to add up to three hundred million dollars of market cap to the stock. Um, I don't know what to think of this. I think it's interesting that you know not, nothing lasts forever. Nothing lasts forever. Fourth quarter earnings say BuzzFeed uh, quarterly revenue grew 18% year over year to $146 million, And profit was up $41.6 million. Well, that's what it rose to. Rose to 41.6, up uh, 29%. Well, then, then what are they complaining about? But it, news is a very, very, very difficult business. Hard to maintain that, maintaining profitability. Extremely difficult. And no one is immune. Meanwhile, mortgage rates hit 4.72%. 26 basis points higher than Friday. So, uh, Producer Ari, uh, you, you, you bought right when you should have. As I planned from the beginning. Like a genius. Uh, this is rough. This is nuts. Which means if we're up 26 basis points in a day, are we about to see this week 5% for a mortgage? Which, historically, still low. But not when rates were in the twos just a few months ago. On Facebook, Tony Katz Radio. Keep it right here. This is Tony Katz Today. So Senator Mike Lee is up next to ask questions of Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson. Uh, Lee is good. Lee is very, very good. You might not like his, him politically, but if we're going to deny the mind and the legal mind and uh, a, a clear look at the situation, well, then you're then you're nuts. So I want to hear his questions. But this back and forth between Senator Graham and and Dick Durbin 
over. I mean, this is this was really weird. I, I've got it for you in full right here. I want to I want to dig into this. Give it a listen. On the issue of Guantanamo, there are currently 39 Guantanamo detainees remaining. The annual budget for Guantanamo is $540 million per year, which means each of these detainees uh, is being held at the expense of 12 or $13 million per year. If they would be incarcerated at Florence, Colorado, the supermax prison, federal prison, the amount would be dramatically, dramatically less. Since 9-11, nearly 1,000 convicted in the United States on terrorism charges. Since 2009, with the beginning of the Obama administration, the recidivism rate of Guantanamo detainees released is 5%. Mr. Chairman, according to the Department, uh, Director of National Intelligence, is 31%. Somebody is wrong here. If you're going to talk about what I said, I'm going to respond to what you said. If we close Gitmo and move them to Colorado, do you support indefinite detention under the law of war for these detainees? I would just say uh, I'm giving the facts. And I the answer make, is no. I want to make sure that it's clear. The 31% you referred to goes back to the year 2009. What does it matter when it goes back to we had them and they got loose and they started killing people? Well, I could just say that uh, if you're one of the people killed in 2005, does it matter to you when we release them? Suggest that the president of your own party released them in. I'm suggesting the system has failed miserably and advocates to change this system like she was in was was advocating would destroy our ability to protect this country. We're at war. We're not fighting a crime. This is not some passage of time event. As long as they're dangerous, I hope they all die in jail if they're going to go back and kill Americans. It won't bother me one bit if 39 of them die in prison. That's a better outcome than letting them go. And if it costs $500 million to keep them in jail, keep them in jail because they're going to go back to the fight. Look at the friggin' Afghan government. It's made up of former detainees and Gitmo. This whole thing by the left about this war ain't working. Let me also note that Larry Thompson, who served as deputy attorney Holy general. Holy cow! I think this, I, 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 the conversation came out of the questions of the Supreme Court nominee, uh, Katanji Brown-Jackson. But after that, Lindsey Graham, Republican, South Carolina, gets up. It's like, I'm out. Left the chamber. I mean, that's... That is something indeed. But anybody who thinks that the recidivism rate is 5%, Dick Durbin is, as I often say, a man most aptly named. I mean, bad stuff. But one of the things that's going to be addressed or has to be addressed by the Supreme Court nominee is... Some of her takes on what is being described as her connection to critical race theory, which we really should say critical race curriculum, and um, views on child pornography, views on a, a, a series of things. This was Senator Marsha Blackburn yesterday. And Americans need a Supreme Court justice who will protect our children and will defend parents' constitutional right to decide what is best for their own kids. And here we need a little clarity. 
at a time when these parental rights appear to be under assault by the radical left, your public comments about, and I'm going to quote you, the transformative power of progressive education, end quote. These are deeply concerning. You serve on the board of a school that teaches kindergartners, five-year-old children, that they can choose their gender and teaches them about so-called white privilege. This school has hosted an organization called Woke Kindergarten and pushes an anti-racist education program for white families. Your public endorsement of this type progressive indoctrination of our children causes one great concern when it comes to how you may rule on cases. Now, anybody who thinks that that's not something we can discuss needs to be dismissed. I just want to be sure we're all on the same page on that. We shouldn't be doing what Joe Biden did to her, reducing her to a gender and, 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 and a race. We should be discussing judicial philosophy. But it is very okay to ask these questions and how they affect her view of, of uh, engaging in adjudication. We shouldn't be looking into, uh, well, what do you do at church? But if you are somebody who advocates on behalf of the concept of white privilege, which is pure bigotry, and and uh, this is this is also true of people who who are white. Well, well, I would say maybe pure bigotry, not as much as pure profit, right? There's a profit motive there. That is allowed to be brought up. Now, Mike Lee is asking the questions. It wasn't my plan, but I've got Mike Lee right here asking the questions live. I, I got to share it. Let's, let's, let's start with how he, he brings us in, talking to the Supreme Court nominee, uh, Judge Brown Jackson. We'll start with uh, what it means, at least to me. One of the things that you, you heard from a lot of members of the committee, uh, whether they couched it in terms of judicial philosophy or not, relates to the idea that justice should be blind, that justice properly administered within our system is blind, and that therefore individual justices and judges serving in Article III courts uh, uh, should, should be blind in the sense that they are able to see and understand and interpret the law, understand what the law is, uh, while understanding that the idea of what the law should be is left to other branches of government, not uh, to the judiciary. In this respect, we recognize that blind justice and blind justices, those who are blind to the things they're supposed to be blind to, are those willing to recognize that if there is a, a policy flaw in the law and if there is a policy change that needs to be made, it's not the role of the court to change it. That belongs to two different branches of government, primarily to Congress. This, of course, requires uh, judicial restraint. It requires judicial humility. Um, and, and it gets back to what I was describing yesterday uh, when I referred to Justice Barrett uh, drawing on the analogy from the Odyssey of Odysseus binding himself to the mast of the ship. Most of us refer to this judicial philosophy as textualism. Textualism is neither liberal nor, dem- uh, n- neither liberal nor conservative. It's neither Republican nor Democratic. It, it, uh, it, it's just the approach that says what the law says matters, and the job of the jurist is to look at the text and figure out what the text means, to ascertain 
the original public meaning of the text in question. While I doubt there are any members of, of this committee who would disagree with the idea that justice should be blind in this respect and that policy changes need to be made by the political branches of government, primarily by the legislative branch and not by the courts, you did hear some statements that I think are uh, at least a little bit at odds with that concept of justice. What Senator Lee is talking about, Senator Mike Lee, Republican of Utah, is the idea of whether or not you are a textualist, an originalist, or do you believe that the Constitution is a living document and changes with the whims of the times? Or are you a textualist and the Constitution says what it says and doesn't say what it doesn't say? This, to me, is the the fundamental. If you are not a textualist, an originalist, the Constitution says what it says and doesn't say what it doesn't say, including, of course, all the amendments. If you believe anything else, then you are somebody who wants to play God as opposed to apply the law fairly. Back to Senator Lee. Court decision away from the ability to make their own health care choices. And the list goes on and on. Now, that type of judicial philosophy uh, would, would have you step into the role of policymaker and decide what the law should be rather than what the law is. You also heard quoted a couple of times yesterday, quoted or paraphrased or otherwise referenced, Federalist 78, in which Alexander Hamilton refers to the difference between law, between will and judgment. Will, as expressed by Hamilton, refers to what the law should be. Judgment pertains to what the law is. The judicial branch has the latter power, but not the former. The legislative branch has the former, but not the latter. Judge Jackson, I'd, I'd love to get your, your thoughts on, on this discussion uh, about what it means, what blind justice is, why that's important. Let's start with, with, with this formulation of it, though. Uh, does, does the law determine the outcome of a case, or does the outcome of the case determine the law? Thank you, Senator. The law determines the outcome of case. And so anytime you're looking at a case and you're looking at the outcomes for ordinary Americans, for day-to-day Americans, if you're looking beyond the scope of deciding that case, and if you're looking even within that case beyond uh, what the law says, uh, you would be stepping into a province of a different branch. Is that right? I believe so. The law and the facts uh, of the case determine the outcome of cases. I think that's, that's an accurate statement. It's important to emphasize this. This is also something that Hamilton describes in Federalist 78, where he goes on to say anytime you start to see the courts start to exercise will instead of judgment, the result is, is supplanting the will of the people as expressed through their elected representatives uh, uh, through the courts. And that tends to undermine the, the whole system. You see, there's a reason, of course, why we give life tenure to... Article Three judges and justices, and that is because we want to make sure that they have the power, the authority, the discretion, and the confidence to issue a decision that they might not be comfortable with. In fact, a, a judge who always agrees with and is always comfortable with his or her own opinions is, as Justice Scalia used to say, not a very good judge. So we wanted them, you all, to have confidence in being able to make the right decision, even knowing that you and 
the public at large might be uncomfortable with the result it produces. Congress makes laws that you won't always agree with. Congress is accountable to the people at regular intervals. You can fire every member of the House of Representatives every two years. You can fire one-third of us in the Senate every two years. We insulate judges and Supreme Court justices from that same accountability precisely for this reason. It's because political accountability is so important. This is borne out in the judicial oath, uh, uh, one of the oaths that you'll take. This is very, very good from Senator Lee. Well, this was not my plan at all. I really, I, I'm not covering these hearings the way we covered Kavanaugh. But just an explanation of, of the Federalist Papers right there and Alexander Hamilton's point, the, the, the judiciary was never supposed to have this much power. The reason they're talking Article 3 is Article 1 is the legislative. Article 2 is the executive. Article 3 is the judiciary. It's purposeful. The people, the president, the courts. So it, it, his, his point, and, and you see him breaking it down, you, can, you could feel it as he was doing it. He's breaking down what matters more. The law or your point of view, and the law matters more. Because by putting that on the record, you are saying that you oppose the idea of the living constitution and what you favor is being a textualist, an originalist. That's what matters. And that is the only thing that matters. That's it. The everything. So I like how he he broke that down. I'm glad we got a chance uh, to hear that. That was a good little lesson right there. How he kind of put that uh, together. Do I believe that Judge Brown Jackson is a a federalist? I'm not a federalist, a textualist? No, I don't. Do I believe that she has some personal issues uh, in terms of philosophies and ideas, uh, these things about um, child predators and about pedophiles and about sentences, these are all legitimate things worthy of discussion? Do I think that any of this stops her from being confirmed at this stage of the game? No. I will say I don't think she's been exceptional. And it's not because she's taking notes. I think it's fine to take notes. I actually thought it weird that Amy Coney Barrett didn't take notes. Taking notes is good. Make sure you understand what you want to say. It's, it, I, I do it all the time. But I, I don't know if she is gaining popularity through this process. I don't think it's going to matter to the 57 votes I think she's going to get in the Senate for confirmation. But still, something's something's a touch off. Something is definitely a touch off. Keep it here. I'm Tony Katz.